0: Everybody, what's going on? How you doing? I'm Jeff Openshaw. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. Nice of you to join us once more as we play our dangerous game. But what will this week's game be? Wait a few minutes and I'll tell you about it. But first, I want to plug a few things. I want to thank all of you who support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com, pledge three bucks a month. You can help us keep the lights on. And legit, our server fees are going up. That's what happens when you're successful, is they want to milk you for more money. So please, we would seriously, for realsies, appreciate it, uh, especially as we go into General Conference season when a lot's going to be going on. We'll have our co- our temple predictions up. We'll have the tie tracker. We'll have lots of things that bring people over to the website, and we want to be able to support that. Uh, likewise, if you haven't subscribed to this show before, wherever you get your podcast, please take the time to do it. So if you're if you're streaming this on some podcast app, hit that smash that subscribe button. Make it happen for our YouTube viewers. I know a few of you are out there. You also make sure to hit that subscribe button. Our YouTube audience is far different from our podcast listening audience. And that's all I'll say about that. But we talked the the first presidency's little vaccine recommendations a month or so ago. The comments on there are exhilarating to say the very least. Anyway, everybody. So thanks for being here. And of course, join us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are active on all of those and hope you will take the time uh, to be with us. So this week, doing an interview. That's right, we love doing our interviews on the show we 're going to table the news until next week, and instead, our news this week is particularly timely because this week in the United States, sorry, international listeners, I am a globalist at heart, but I am also an American, and you need to recognize that America is you know the land foreordained for the restoration of all good things, so because of that Constitution <laughs> day is in the United States on September seventeenth this week as we 're recording. Uh, I don't think much about Constitution Day. I'm not going to lie. I imagine a lot of you are, uh, are similar who are listening. And if you're good about Constitution Day, good on you. It's not something I thought much about. However, we are going to speak with Alicia Tucker, who is an educator of religion and public life. Uh, also, uh, I'd, I will dare say a scholar on the American Revolution and the First Amendment. And she's the executive director of the Utah 3Rs Project, which promotes understanding of the religion the religion clauses in particular of the First Amendment. And because it's Constitution Day this week, we thought this was a great time to visit the American Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, what it means to us as Latter-day Saints, and also sort of what the Utah 3Rs project is and what we can learn from that. And there are absolutely lessons. This might all sound very history, politics, all that kind of stuff. There's stuff very relevant to Latter-day Saints going on this week. So that was a long intro. But uh, Alicia, how are you?
1: I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to almost, to be on.
0: I almost did a Tobias Funke. How are you? Um, for my rest of development friends. Uh, by way of disclaimer, Alicia and I have actually known each other for like eleven years. So um, but we're not like we're not like besties though, right? So it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. This is all this is a ver- this is still we professional. We couldn't have a conversation
1: checking. if we were besties. I actually we were in the same ward when you and Danielle got married. The colonial we second ward is very uh, fond memories.
0: Those were the days. Yes. Alicia was in the same ward where I met my dearly beloved wife. And uh, a lot of us have all done all kinds of things over the years. Though I haven't had the pleasure of seeing you in person for some time. I know you moved back to Utah number, I don't know, how long ago now? A few years ago? About a year and a half ago. Whatever. So, Yeah, you've been married
1: for a while. You've been out of the single scene.
0: (sighs) I know. I know. And then you kind of drop off
1: the face of the earth as far as singles hanging out.
0: somewhat the one thing people always ask me right around because when we got married is did you use tinder and i'm like no tinder became a uh, thing like right after we got married so i know tinder
1: never and an lds community
0: and mutual
1: mutual yeah and come mutual on you know
0: good. you use mutual alicia don't, don't oh pretend. i oh
1: i totally use mutual i'd like make a commercial for them if you needed. <laughs> <they> needed it <laughs> i especially moving in utah i have been on more dates than i have in my whole life and i, yeah? I find it very useful and helpful and meeting Out, the, a great variety of men.
0: This is a full blown digression from our topic, but, <laughs> but but as a single as a single woman, so when I when I moved to DC, one thing I found was I thought the dating scene was very different here compared to elsewhere, and a lot of a lot of women I would speak to liked the DC dating scene because I don't know if they felt like the pool was just different and better, there was less vapidity. I don't know what it might be, but how's it been for you since you've jumped back and forth and like you've gone on more dates in Utah? So for you, you think Utah just from the sheer, just abundance of single Latter-day Saints is just. Yeah. In terms of like
1: meeting different people and a variety of different people, I think in DC, you kind of, you're all in the same small community. So you kind of all know each other. So it's a matter of whether you're going to start dating somebody you already know. And in Utah, it's more that I, I get to meet brand new people all the time. You can
0: basically leave that guy from Woods Cross by the wayside (laughs) and never worry about seeing him ever again. That's what you're saying. Makes sense. That's fair.
1: Yeah, it's been an experience for sure.
0: <laughs> I like when we call things an experience. Like it's yeah. not. It's not even a euphemism. It's just a nice way of say, not saying what anything actually. Is.
1: Yeah. So. Great experiences uh, Alicia, and some bad experiences. It's been a, a mixed imagine. bag for sure.
0: Now, Alicia. And by the way, everyone, Alicia's name is Elisha, not Alicia. Oh, Elisha. you remember? Wow. Yep. Well, I know I do know name is spelled. It's Elisha, uh, not to be confused with Elisha either. I don't know how much you've gotten that in yes, your life or it's Elijah true. or anything like that. So I know very much that you you love you love the American Revolution. I've known mm-hmm. that about you since when I first met you. But tell us about the Utah Three R's project. I had no idea what this was until we started talking about it. Tell us what this means and why it matters.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the Utah Three R's project. Our mission is to foster understanding about religious liberty, religious literacy, and civil dialogue. And we mostly focus on training teachers about the proper relationship of religion in a public school setting, and then also the proper relationship of religion in an American society within the public square. So we promote understanding of religious liberty, that the freedom to believe or not to believe is an inalienable right of every person, and that the religion clauses of the First Amendment are the guides for living with our deepest differences in as an American society. So we believe that as you get and understand the the challenges of the religion dealing with religion in American society, then you can deal with the other rights in a successful way, in a way that creates a strong constitutional culture that continues our continues our ideals and protects rights. And um, so the the three R's are rights, especially teaching the freedom of conscience, and teaching responsibility that everybody has the responsibility to protect the rights of others, and that. Um, the last R is respect. That we have a duty to engage in respectful civil discourse in society, and that uh, religious, religious diversity in American society is a civic good. So that's mostly the you know the approach for the the project. And it was started um, by a scholar named Charles Haynes and uh, another scholar named Buzz Thomas, who is was the uh, the architect for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the '90s. And they were educating public schools about religion in a public school setting and some leaders in Utah invited them to Utah in the 90s. And they established the Three Hours Project, they established one in California, and there's also one that has recently been established in Georgia. So in in Utah, it faded out in uh, 2008 when, when the main leader retired. And so I Because Obama working-
0: became president.
1: I <laughs> okay. uh, that probably didn't have anything to do with it.
0: But- Those are my words, people, not hers. Don't worry. <laughs> Just kidding.
1: But yeah. uh, so in DC, I worked at a nonprofit that taught about the American Constitution. And then I taught, I was the education director for a nonprofit that taught about the American Revolution. And I finished my master's thesis on the bill for establishing religious freedom, um, written by Thomas Jefferson. And so when I finished that on the side, I started teaching the history of religious freedom in the United States for the, um, religious freedom center at the museum. and the museum was affiliated with these three R's projects. So when I was looking for a change, I'd been at the society of the Cincinnati, uh, where I taught about the American revolution. I'd been there for seven years. And so I was looking to do something new and, uh, worked out to get a fellowship to come to Utah to explore reviving the Utah 3Rs project. And it's been a year and we are all established as 501c3 status and have a board and we've been training teachers. And even in spite of the pandemic, things have gone really well, which I'm really pleased about.
0: That's really cool. I want to circle back to one thing you said kind of near the beginning. You said you talked about, you know, the appropriate role of religion in public schools. That could, many could see that could be a heated thought. I would mm-hmm. imagine, you know, in some circles. So what do you define as the appropriate role of that? And especially in the context of somewhere like Utah, where the dominant religious culture carries extra weight than it mm-hmm. might might somewhere else.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So uh, when I say the proper relationship in American society with religion, what I mean is um, people often have a misconception that uh, the separation of church and state means that religion should be kept private. And that's not the American model at all, that under the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, it guarantees that the public square and including a public school, which is a microcosm of the public square, is a religiously robust space. And but what uh, paired with that is the under the Establishment Clause that the administrators and teachers as employees of the state, they have to be neutral toward religion. So they can't favor one, they can't. Proselytize Jesus and hope to save their kids. You know they they can't say like read the Book of Mormon. You know they need to be neutral, but they can't stop the free expression of their students. So because a right. lot of teachers are not educated about that, then they are actually behaving illegally when they suppress the free exercise of their students. But like in an American public school, students can can pray. Like in in France, the um, the model is secularism and to keep religion private. You can't have, you can't wear a cross to school. You can't bring scriptures. You can't wear a yarmulke. Like you have to hide your religion essentially. And that's not the model here in the United States. It's a religiously robust robust, um, community. And really what we want to do with Utah 3R's project is to help students to have Training on citizenship that they can understand the rules of engagement, which is the Constitution, in this and have practice in school where they know what rights are, they feel responsibility to those around them to protect their rights and they're respectful. And then as they grow up in that community, that culture of constitutional culture, and then they go into society, then they are better able to contribute to a, a political culture that maintains and continues our experiment in liberty. Um, rather than blowing it up and letting it die, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so obviously, you feel there's a There's a. Do you feel like it's mostly misunderstandings then of what the laws are and the standards are? Like, do you feel like this? These concepts of religion and public life are. How do I phrase this? There's a bit of a narrative like they're under threat from from ne'er do wells who are like legitimately want to threaten them because they do not like religion or want it in the public space. Is that the real threat, or is the threat simply that we don't understand the rules and we realize like no kids can pray in school? It might be a different thing if the principal came out and said, "Everyone, join me in a prayer to Jesus." Like that might not that mm-hmm. might be inappropriate. I'm assuming. But it's obviously okay if kids want to pray at school or if kids I, – I i see this could be where it could go to the courts. If kids want to start a prayer club, you could easily see that being one of those things you see in the news. So do you think the issue is just the our own ignorance about these issues or are there actual negative influences that are out there driving this down? I hope that makes sense.
1: Um, Sure, yeah. So I would say – well, first it is um – that teachers are uninformed about religion in a public school. So or how are often uninformed and that they are scared of being sued or getting in trouble. So then they squelch religion. That's one part. But then you're talking more broadly about American culture wars and like the religious, right. Where they're, they're worried about, you know, the, the, the end times coming because we don't, you know, we're not, like people aren't learning about God the way they are, the, the way they used to. And now, you know, there's other lifestyles that are very prominent in, in society and that they need to to fight that. So I think a true understanding of the, the freedom of conscience and feeling the responsibility to protect that conscience helps to solve the problem for the culture wars, because you are um, engaging in a way that respects somebody else's uh, God given or Uh, natural right, like as a Latter-day Saint, I would say God-given, but natural right of, um, of, you know, of nature of what we we have inherently. So it's, um, I, I think proper understanding of religious freedom, that it's not just protection for my own religion, but in protecting my own religion, it's also I feel convicted to protect the religion of others, even if I'm convicted that they're wrong. And that their values are offensive to what I believe to be true, that they have the freedom to express that. And I have the freedom to also advocate for what I believe is true, but that we share, we share the public square, that they have just as much ownership of the public square as I do. I could be an active citizen and try to persuade my point of view within the public square, But they have that I can't squelch them and and push them aside. That they they're Americans too, just as much as I'm an American.
0: Mm -hmm. I like that. So the the sort of work you do then, like what does that involve? Obviously, you have a mission, and a lot of this involves educating people about these issues that we're talking about. So as a nonprofit, where do you where do you wedge yourself in here in these discussions about public education, religion, respect? Like I said, rights, responsibility, respect. What is it you, what is it you put out? What is it? What is the product? I guess we could say, not that you're a pro not that you're, you know what I mean? It's not a product, but
1: <laughs> what are you hustling?
0: What, what uh, are you hustling? What, we... what's, what, what's your, what's your downline? Tell me more.
1: <laughs> so our, the competencies that we promote are religious liberty. So understanding the law and the history around, so the development of the religious freedom clauses and the, the history around them. And then the Supreme court cases, especially when it comes to, um, public schools. So that's the legal education, Um, and mostly for teachers, but then we develop resources that the teachers would use with their students. So it's student-facing resources that we train teachers on how to use. So religious liberty, and then religious literacy. So knowledge about different religions. So when teachers, especially in social studies classes, when they're teaching about religion, that Mm -hmm. they can do it justice and in a respectful way that doesn't promote stereotypes. And then, if they're not teaching religion, like if it's some you know computer class or like art or whatever, well, religion comes up in art too, but yeah, um, of course but that that teachers can be informed of the different kinds of religion that uh, of the students that could be coming through their classrooms so that they can be respectful toward them. So um, re- Utah, especially right now, it's it's the demographics are changing quite a bit, and so there's you know, a lot of teachers who, maybe they're only familiar with being Latter-day Saint and they're not familiar with the different um, different ways of being religious and so that they could recognize that and be respectful t- toward that for their students instead of squelching it. And then okay. the last the last one is civil dialogue, which I really thought that we would be doing more religious liberty, religious literacy training, but really the last year, especially after the election, we decided that, there was really more of a need and an interest in civil dialogue. So we've been no, doing
0: no, we're civil fine. dialogue training. <laughs> <We're fine>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the, the examples that we use are ways that people are um, successfully having hard conversations across religious differences because the religious differences go so deeply to their values and how they see the world that if they can understand how to have a hard conversation across those differences, then having mm. hard conversations about whatever else is a lot easier.
0: Yeah. And I mean, gosh, we could use that more now than ever. And so do you frame these things as sort of modules. Do you run into, because um, this is not any sort of like official accreditation or anything like that, like, or, or, or certification that teachers are getting. Do you ever run into issues? Like, is this, I mean, essentially you're developing, you're doing like third-party curricula in a sense, right? And is this yeah. essentially a resource for teachers to do on their own? Or is this the sort of thing you're trying to get school districts to adopt and say, this is these are the things put together by the utah three r s project Use these, and we are telling you to use this resource you know is mm-hmm. this yeah is that's it-
1: that's a really good question so um it's supplemental curriculum, so I'm not like developing several units of a whole American history class. It's more right. like when you're teaching about these things like these are really good resources, like for example. Now that I've just finished this Constitution Day lesson, then I'm going to start, and I've started conversations of developing resources about the religion of Utah natives, pe- Native peoples. So when a lot of teachers don't know much, and I don't really know that much about it, I'm just starting to learn from um, some professors at Utah Valley University. Um, we, we're a, officially headquartered at the Center for the Study of Ethics at Utah Valley University. So it's been so helpful um, Brian Birch is the director there, and he's the, the president of the um, of Utah 3R's project, and so he's helped to connect us with other professors and resources at UVU, which is so helpful. Um, so it's, it's not like mandated, but it's there's lots of civic education organizations that offer resources for teachers that they can choose to use. And um, but we align them with state standards. So everything is um, something that they would need to teach anyway. And teachers are often looking for really good resources of especially organizations that are specialized in certain topics that like if they know what they're talking about, then, you know, they want to use them. Mm -hmm. And we have we have a relationship with the Utah State Board of Education. Um, the social studies coordinator at U- Utah State Board of Education who was involved in the project in in the past and now is encouraging of it now. So anytime we have um, a new resource, then he'll send it out to his social studies coordinators and then the social studies coordinators send it to the teachers. And so it's it's more like, hey, there's this great resource. You can use it. And then we're also working on um, passing a resolution in the Utah State Legislature this next upcoming session um, that will talk about the three rs and so that's gonna be like an endorsement from the Utah legislature that shows that like there's there's like official support or endorsement of you know the work of this organization, and so when we approach school districts and different teachers and say, Hey, this is a resource, then they there's some like uh credibility or they can see that there's there's other support that are from like you know organizations that they recognize that are credible and reliable and you know the nature of the work is that teachers are worried about you know if teaching religion wrong and so yeah. if, it, if we have the support from the utah state state board of ed and then the legislature then it it quells the nerves of teachers that might otherwise be worried about um what hell they might bring
0: right right um how do you feel, just flat out? Then you're you're in Utah. It's as Utah focused. How does Utah? How is Utah doing with with religious literacy and civil dialogue? How where does Utah stand? At least, if you were, I know you're not working in every state, but how mm-hmm. do you feel it does on the bell curve <laughs> compared to the rest of the country?
1: I really cannot comment for the rest of the country because I just feel like Utah is so unique <laughs> in it. I think that people are. Um, for the most part, because there's such a strong uh, Latter-day Saint dominance that they either have really prickly feelings toward the church and like resent its cultural dominance and yeah. and how it influences things, but it depends on which county, right? So Salt Lake's, uh, we've done work in Salt Lake City school district, and then there's also like Utah County, which you know, they're just ones like high diversity and ones more homogenous and, yeah. you know, just the ones like more highly densely populated Latter-day Saint and one is, you know, they're dealing with like refugees coming in and, you know, lower socio socioeconomic students, um, students experiencing lower socioeconomic experiences. So I, um I think in terms of how like they're doing that there's like a feeling that they need this because like the church is so influential and strong that they need like help navigating it, which we'll talk about some of the case studies later. And I have examples of like how to illustrate for students ways of navigating respectfully those dominance, that, that feeling of dominance. Um, And, and I guess it's more like the, um, I feel like, most people who are Latter-day Saint, they just don't have an awareness of how other people feel because they're the they're the majority. <laughs> and then there's like the religious minority where, where I grew up, I was the religious minority being a Latter-day Saint. And here is like the flip where like I was going to a new CrossFit gym and I was chatting with somebody who was just being really friendly. And I can't remember how I think he asked me like what my job was or whatever. And he said... I said, Oh, I'm Latter-day Saint. And he just like went cold after that. And I was like, for one, I was just fascinated. I'm like, Oh, that's so interesting. He knows what that is. You know, that's a different experience from where I was and Uh that he wanted to chat with me before. And then he suddenly didn't. And so like, I don't know what was going on with him, but that is just something that's unique to Utah. I think that people already have strong feelings, especially if they're, um, or in or, a lot of people, they uh, their relationship with the church is complicated, right? So they maybe grew up LDS, they feel some affection for it, but they have a lot of beef with it, mm-hmm. and you know, and hurt feelings in some way. And so there's just it's a it's a spectrum.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess you Utah does have to be a different case. I mean, I think you could argue anywhere that has such sort of socio-religious or cultural hegemony. In a sense, which are few and far between in the United States. I mean, Utah is a great example of. It. I don't know where else you'd have to go to really get to that level. I don't know if you'd be southern states, perhaps, that are very, very strongly uh, within some of their own areas. But Utah is an interesting example of that. That's some That's what I wondered about when we were setting up this conversation. Just like,
1: but how I would much... say would oh, say ahead. about Utah is that uh, they do respect religion. I think more than other places. I think it's like when I'm trying to. Educate about religion, like I think I imagine, and other states would be like, "Why?" You know, but in Utah, yeah. there's the sense of like, um, "Yeah, we need that." Like, tell me more. Yeah.
0: Well, what, what would you tell to the states that say, "Well, why?" That's a whole different side of it. It's like, "Why should this even be part of our discussion?" What do you say to that instead?
1: It's part of the Constitution, and that they, in terms of protecting the rights of everyone, then the religion clauses provide that model of navigating differences whether it's for like really religious people or people that aren't that religious they they provide a good framework
0: okay so uh i mentioned constitution day it's a thing every september 17th people but if you don't know about constitution day alicia could you just like tell us what constitution day is the history of it what it's supposed to mean. I mean, it it makes me assume we're celebrating the Constitution, but I imagine there's a little bit of detail there that you could could give to us.
1: Yeah. So Constitution Day, it was essentially created in 2004 when Senator Robert Byrd inserted the provision into an omnibus bill where it requires public school teachers to teach about the Constitution on September 17th and September 17th is the day we celebrate when at the end of the Constitutional convention in 1787 when after you know the summer of creating the Constitution then those when they signed the Constitution and then sent it out to the states for ratification. So that's what we're noting and celebrating. And it had previously been citizen Citizen Day um, which was passed, uh, at the beginning of World War II, and that was to recognize the those who were not born as citizen, as American citizens, and then they became American citizens in in the U.S. And so,
0: oh yeah, it, we don't celebrate those people anymore. That time, that time <laughs> is <time has> past. <laughs> that's, that's
1: true. So, I I think um, I I actually don't know how celebrated Citizens Day was, but my sense is that it it wasn't. You know, it's like some advocates passed passed and made it a holiday of some sort, but there wasn't a lot of recognition for it.
0: It should be a holiday. I think that's a great thing to celebrate, right? I think just yeah, as well, like, I, I think like I'm glad absolutely. to see like June like Juneteenth has become much more part of our mm-hmm. cultural fabric in the past couple of years and it's becoming mm-hmm. a holiday. Great. It became
1: yeah, a federal holiday.
0: We should celebrate Citizenship Day and the wonderful thing it is that we live in a country where people could come from all over the world and become part of our entire national fabric. We should, but now it's no more anyway. Now it's about the constitution. Well, so. it's
1: constitution day and citizen day, citizenship oh. day. So, oh. so in, in 2017, when president Trump recognized constitution day, it was uh-huh. officially constitution day and citizenship day.
0: Okay. All right. So uh, it's just to commemorate the constitution. That's a fair thing. Obviously, I'm thinking about the members of our faith. We have a unique relationship with the Constitution as Latter-day Saints. I don't. I'm not aware of any other faith. I might be historians. Please knock me down, if <laughs> needed to be. But the constitutional is kind of a, a foundational document for the Latter-day Saint movement because we believe it was divinely inspired and we believe it laid the groundwork for making the restoration possible. It's a huge part of who we are. Uh, And we revere the Constitution. We talk about it, you know, reasonably so in church. But I think that is interesting because, uh, aside from the fact we're a global faith and we're trying to consider that when we develop our curricula at the church level, because it's not like we had a Constitution Day lesson this past Sunday in church Mm -hmm. or anything like that to remind Mm -hmm. us of such things. And that's okay. That's okay. But obviously, that's a lot of. It's in a lot of our our DNA as Latter Day Saints. And yet, I think we're largely oblivious to Constitution Day. We're largely oblivious to the thing that is that is such a big part of what made the restoration possible. Like, Why do you think we haven't placed more emphasis on Constitution Day as Latter-day Saints, especially as Latter-day Saints? I get it why overall as society, we just kind of forget about these things, but why as Latter-day Saints are we not doing more about it?
1: Uh, That's a good question. I think just as a faith, we don't, we're not really a holiday faith. You know, like the Jewish tradition has, lots of different religious holidays that turn their minds to God and to have traditions of practicing particular things in different holidays. And we just don't have that in our faith. Like even around Easter,
0: we have pioneer day, stupid pioneer day. Sorry. Pioneer day. Wonderful (laughs) pioneer day.
1: Like pioneer day is a Utah state holiday. And then we like, Sing, come, come, you saints on Sunday. So, like, how much do we really recognize Pioneer Day? Well, we, like, we, we might have at some church talks. level. We
0: push it. We push it, though. We try. I mean, they try to. They make people in Japan go on trek. I mean, we see things about. It.
1: <laughs> okay, I haven't. That's that's beyond my knowledge. But I, I think that for one, Constitution Day has only really been a thing since 2004, and mm-hmm. I think, um, but this last. Uh, come follow me reading section included reading about the constitution. So I don't imagine that they paced it that way, but it just kind of worked out to be that way. Mm -hmm. So in section 98, um, it talks, it says like, therefore I, the Lord justify you and your brethren of my church and befriending the law, which is the constitutional law of the land. So, and because it creates freedom. And so I think we do care about it. And I, I think in Utah, there's like different organizations that host Constitution Day events. And in DC, there's Constitution Day events. But in terms of like a broader uh, religious practice, uh, maybe that's in our future. Maybe we have work to do.
0: I think we need to make this a thing. I, I don't know if it would be. I think appropriate- if, Elder, if
1: President Oakes had anything to do with it or any influence on it, then it probably would be more of a thing. I feel like church.
0: he's had the influence and he's just been sitting on his hands. And I mean,. He's been I, in a th- position I, to I do think spec- about I think specifically
1: about uh if if there was like interest in making Constitution Day more of a recognized like holiday in the church then I think he would be behind he would support somebody who is advocating for that
0: All right and you should make sure to say advocate don't say agitate and don't march on temple square demanding <laughs> it. you're going to find yourself in bad just, a, just not the place you want to be you got to find that balance Now well, I understand I, the uh,
1: about president oaks please. i think it's i think it's noteworthy that um he gave a talk in 1992 about the divinely inspired constitution and then he oh, gave yeah. a very similar talk this last right. conference and you know he he felt like this moment in my my, my own interpretation is like post election polarization of of our political landscape that he felt like it was really important for members of the church to understand the the role of the constitution in in helping us Have our rights and have separation of powers and uh, he the difference between the two talks was he he had a part about um sometimes you have to support political candidates that you don't necessarily want to support but they're the best option and that we shouldn't judge each other for you know whatever our political views are and we shouldn't bring them into church because then you know, that, that actually hurts people's faith when they hear all this, this political rhetoric at church, and, and especially if they disagree with it. So I just, I thought that was really interesting that it was essentially the same talk, but he added those two notes. Um, and it's important for our time right now, at least he thinks so.
0: I thought so too. And that, that talk was so, it was a great talk overall. And and when I was listening to it, and as I've reread through it, it's like, I absolutely see how the different sides that we have politically, unfortunately the ites among us could easily read into those remarks to support different positions as well. Like it was very easy to read into it and be like, see people are saying like, yeah, that's why I support Donald Trump. He has unsavory characteristics, but it's a better thing. But other people read the exact same thing and said, this is literally saying Joe Biden is pro choice, but that doesn't mean it's wrong to support the man. Um, And I think that part of that's deliberate. It's still up to us to make good choices and embrace our, pluralism or pluralism as a as a people and not you know demonize one another well and that that
1: relates to one of the um the frameworks that we teach for religious literacy that um religions are internally diverse and they're embedded in culture so there's internal diversity within the latter-day saint community i think a lot of people don't think so they think there's like one right way and then everybody else needs to either change their ways or be excommunicated and like purify the body of Christ, but I think we benefit when there is that diversity and people are bringing, are acting on their conviction of con- conscience and how they're applying the scriptures and that we all learn from one another as we wrestle among understanding one another and seeking mm-hmm. that, um, feeling that responsibility to protect their, their journey, essentially, and I think if we had that approach to our relationship with our ward members, especially when they uh, put us off <laughs> for their political views, then we would get closer to Zion, uh, and it would please God, in my opinion.
0: I like that. So, coming back to Constitution Day, um, I believe you have a, a new lesson this week specific to it. You co-developed it with the Quill Project of Pembroke College at, from Oxford. Forgive me, I know Oxford, but the other parts of that, you might have to, you know, I'm stupid. So help us with that. But you want to tell us about what that's all about? Tell us about the Quill Project. You're partnering with them. Tell us about this new lesson, which I believe is called Getting to Union, Navigating Differences in the Constitutional Convention. Give it to us. uh,
1: Quill Project is one of our partners. They are, as you mentioned, headquartered at Pembroke College, Oxford University in England. Um, and their their main project is that they are um, making available negotiated text, and it's uh, I've heard the director describe it as track changes on steroids, <laughs> where <laughs> you can understand what the debates are happening for these negotiated texts. Meaning, like eventually the Constitution or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the Reconstruction Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, and um, it. It's an online platform and a library of these collections, where it makes it possible where you can go into one date of debate and see what were the proposals up to that point, what were the what was defeated, how did the, che- the text how did the text change, and it really puts into context the changes and development of um, how we eventually have these like landmark documents. So we, I'm so grateful to be able to, to work with them. The director is Dr. Dr. Nicholas Cole. Um, Quill Project is essentially his brainchild. He was a professor at Oxford University and started feeling like this is a project that needs to happen. And he said he kind of felt like other people, he was waiting for somebody else to do it and nobody else was doing it. <laughs> and so he left his position and, you know, worked out a relationship where he could Make a go at this project, and it's been really successful. And so he and I have worked on this um, this lesson together. And so it's a really sophisticated library for researchers, and they they want to be able to make it accessible for classrooms so that they can learn about the Constitution and using really accurate resources. And so he and I this is the second lesson that we've done uh, where we work together, where I, I I'm like uh, help them understand what the standards are. We talk about what the what the history is and what we want to emphasize. So for this particular um, lesson, getting to union, navigating differences in the constitutional convention, we really felt like on this theme of civil dialogue that the convention, when the delegates came together, they were so divided by their differences. And um, the country was essentially very precarious. Like it was about to fail and Great Britain was ready to swoop in and to recover its resources that it lost in the war. But, and it was just waiting for that to happen. So the delegates, when they came to the convention, they knew that they were in trouble and they needed to solve this, but they did have very deep differences. And we we felt like that was the model or that this, how they came across, how they navigated their differences to create this enduring union, is a good model for where we are in this political moment especially for students and understanding that we can look to the constitutional convention cuz a lot of times people have a broad stroke of like well the founders believed but if they really understood the history the founders were very divided they had very they negotiated deals to accept different ag- uh, arrangements to in order to make the union so They've that's compromise oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, go for it. But, but the but the um but the lesson focuses on how like how fragile things were and then what was the process they set up in order to make space to navigate these issues. So they the the process was that they set up a a set of rules from the beginning where everyone could air out their their issues or their grievances, and uh every delegate was allowed to um debate things twice, at least twice uh, on an issue, and that they were really clear on what they were debating. They had things written out. They distributed copies of what they were debating to each of the delegates. And then if something was too complicated, then they formed a smaller group and had different viewpoints of people, uh, delegates representing different states from different viewpoints. And then they worked through it as a committee and then came back to the group. So... Mm this process helped to develop trust among the delegates and uh, we emphasize in the lesson that it's because of this process that those compromises were possible so we we highlight the compromise over representation that the main fear of each of the states coming in were that they were worried that they were going to lose their voice and also their power that they had under the articles of confederation uh which was the previous uh government that they had under during the war so, within within that context, then they were able to um, work out representation, and they also worked out uh, compromises over slavery, which they act, which Hamilton and, and Madison early in the convention tried to work out how um, not having some states have an advantage, um, the the slave holding states to have an advantage, but it was it never, it didn't get anywhere, but that was early in the convention when they didn't, when they hadn't gone through this process of navigating their differences and then building this trust. So when they got to, um, negotiating over slavery, the, uh, what came, came, what we know now is the three fifths clause. And some, some people understand incorrectly, the three fifths clause is counting enslaved people as three fifths, but really the, what the deal was that they worked out was that the slave states wanted to count all their enslaved people in their representation, which would give them more of an advantage because they had more people and more they had more enslaved people. And then the states that didn't have a large popula- population of enslaved people, then they, um, they didn't want to count them. So they were at this impasse, but eventually they were able to come to this agreement of three-fifths, which is what... Under the Articles Confederation, how they counted for taxation, and the representation and taxation were closely linked in their minds for like no taxation mm-hmm. without representation. So that's how they were able to work out that agreement, and they wouldn't have been able to have the um, make the union without uh, the slave states uh, joining. And so n- at no time were they debating the morality of slavery. They, you know, some states. They opposed it, but they they didn't feel like it was their task to to debate the morality of it. So they were able to work out these really complicated agreements and to have a union uh, because of this process. And I think it provides a good model for us today because, um, especially in our discourse, like our what's very common is just to shut down the other side. But mm-hmm. the difference in the Constitutional Convention was to provide the space to air out okay, let me hear what you have to say. What is it that, like, what's your issue? How can we work on coming to a common ground and to have a union together? And that is the American tradition now. And in order for us to keep our union and continue the tradition, the political tradition that we have inherited from previous generations, then students today and Americans today, um, need to adopt this process of being able to navigate differences with people who are different from them.
0: And what would you say, like you mentioned students, we think about members of our church, Latter-day Saint youth are obviously big in Utah. Um, They should embrace this approach What's the like? What's the the real world way to play that out? If you're at school, you're with your fellow students. As not everyone's going to form committees and go into committee rooms and do stuff <laughs> to, to have civil dialogue. So, what would you recommend? It's like the actual process? How would you go about doing this to try to take the time to understand others and forge compromises and get there? But in just everyday, you know, regular old banal associations, what would you do?
1: Um, I think one of, especially for a Latter-day Saint community, the issue that's really challenging, especially Latter-day Saint youth, are how to interact with the LGBTQ community, especially when they are working for stronger voices on campuses. And like, how should you approach them, especially when, you know, in your conscience and what your faith tradition teaches is that what they're doing is wrong and that they shouldn't be who they are. And so I think, mm-hmm. as as they adopt, as students, you know, in a predominantly Latter Day Saint community, as they have this approach of, I want to hear out what you're what you're thinking and what you're saying, so that we can have a good school community, a good, you know, broader community that is cooperative and not uh, at odds that could lead to bullying and violence. That I think as they give space to air, to seek understanding of these issues then that um that provides a model for how to navigate differences especially because if they're not going to agree ever or like maybe someday but but like at least in the immediate future i i think the approach is not to try to persuade somebody else but more to live successfully in the public square um, in a way that helps to preserve our our experiment in liberty instead of um, being at odds with each other, that makes it more and more at the, the structure of our government itself at, at risk.
0: Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. And so students, so of course students for one thing, and that's, I love that you brought the LGBTQ I to said the question. Mm-hmm. But that's a real issue facing us as Latter-day Saints. I mean, obviously it's been in the news. I'm sure you tracked some of what Elder Holland said the other week, and that had ripples throughout the Latter-day Saint community. And there's a lot we're still figuring out and the right way to represent ourselves. And likewise, you focus on students, but you mentioned before, you know, you're, you're developing essentially modules, you're developing lessons, supplemental lessons for teachers as well, and for Utah public school teachers. Um Likewise, I'd love to know what you do to approach civil dialogue how you approach civil dialogue and uh maybe if you've have you done like case studies with that you've teach to these teachers and particularly how they might relate to um just how they would relate somewhere like Utah when there's such a dominant culture in Utah like we've talked about before the cultural hegemony that latter day saints have in Utah. You've told me you've had case studies before. We were talking online. I'd love to learn about these. Like, what are these case studies you have that you've, you've used to illustrate these issues to teachers and help them then convey those lessons to students?
1: Sure. So, we have some online student modules of case studies of um, things that happened in Utah where they model successful civil dialogue across religious differences. And so the way that we approach civil dialogue is what we call the KAZAM method, that uh, KAZAM meaning knowledge, skills, attitude, and motivation, that in every dialogue, there's these components happening. So each of the case studies that we have, which are available online at utah3rs.org under Utah case studies, um, each case study illustrates one of the components of the KAZAM method of knowledge, skills, attitudes, and motivation. So the first case study that we have is uh, for knowledge. It is an example of some Bosniak youth and some Latter-day Saint youth that got together. Um, It was an event that was sponsored by the Religious Freedom Institute, which is headquartered in Washington, DC. They um, brought these youth together. Bosniaks are the, um, Bosniak is a word for Muslims who are from Bosnia. Mm -hmm. So a lot of in, in the Salt Lake area after the Bosnian genocide, um, some of the Bosnian Muslims fled and settled here in Utah. So um, this event gathered some Latter-day Saint youth and some Bosniak youth to just have dinner and to do a service project together. So what we focus on for knowledge is just the, the three R's of Understanding that there's different ways of expressing religion, so uh, the freedom of conscience, and then feeling a responsibility to protect the rights of others, and then being respectful as they talk to one another. And so, one of the main takeaways for that case study I think is really important is that most of the Latter day Saint youth were like, We didn't even know what a Bosniak was. And now that they've met somebody, they've had this conversation, and it humanizes them, Um, you know, from going from not knowing anything about them to having this like personal connection. So I think for Latter-day Saints, we should seek those kinds of relationships where we are learning from other people who are different from us. Um, so that's the first case study. And each of these are models for civil dialogue. And then the what we train for, for teachers is to have the discussion or, or have a civil dialogue in their classroom after they have these good examples of what the civil dialogue looks like. Okay. So the, cool. so the second case study, we call it Book of Mormon Vandal, and it's an instance with um, Jody Ide, who's a social studies teacher at in Canyon School District, and she's on our board. She um, there's some videos where she describes the the situation, what happened. So she was teaching a comparative religions class, and one day another a student came and told her that another student in the class ripped up pages of the Book of Mormon and spread it throughout the school. And Jody was really disappointed because they'd had lessons about. Um, treating sacred texts with respect and, you know, not just the Book of Mormon, but other, other religious texts too. Sure. So she says that she went to her principal and was like, this just happened. What do I do? And her principal said, I trust you, you could do it. And so she went back to her class and before it started, she put put the chairs into a circle. And she said like, from the beginning, um, she's, I'm not going to talk. I just want to listen today. And because all the students knew what happened, like it, you know, word gets around in school. So she right. just sat, sat back and she said it It felt like forever. But finally, the students started talking. And the student that she knew ripped up the Book of Mormon and spread pages throughout the school. She didn't talk much. But the other students, um, especially those who were not Latter-day Saints, they started speaking up about um, their the hurt feelings that they had over the years where they were not they used to be invited to birthday parties and then they no longer were and then they would be treated very friendly in a friendly way and invited to lots of activities but then when they weren't interested in joining the church then all that stopped mm-hmm. and so they they essentially were like sharing this pain and she said there was one girl in particular who was on the seminary council who was just really empathetic and kind of like owned it for the whole community and said I'm I'm really sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry that, you know, you've been treated that way and, you know, please help us to to like make it right. And so I think that that student is a great example of how we should all be as Latter-day Saints where she wasn't aware of the impact that, you know, the how these students were hurt from this predominant political culture but she was seeking to repent in a way and to make it right and to show empathy and to um, extend, like, she didn't ask for forgiveness, but like have that, that feeling of it. So that's one, another case study. Uh, we use that a lot with teachers. And then the next case study, or and that one is um, skills. So and teaching the students the skills of listening, because a lot of times, and this is also in the preach my gospel training for missionaries that You don't need to listen for what you're going to say. You need to listen for what you're going to hear the person say instead of like preparing what you're going to say. So listening and then sitting with the discomfort. Um, So like having these kinds of conversations, it's a skill to be able to. Be uncomfortable and like, know that's okay because a lot of times you want to jump in and like make it better or like overcome that discomfort. Yeah, yeah. And then the other skill that we talk about is um, using sentence frames, which we have like a worksheet that says like ways to start a sentence. It's it's support for the students as they start practicing dialogue where it's like, I hear what you're saying. This is what I was thinking or that connects to something that i thought about or whatever there's um, like structure for that. Yeah. So, yeah. so then so the next case study is um, it's a case about attitude, and we talk about having an attitude of openness instead of being defensive, that we have an attitude of seeking or feeling curious to learn about somebody else. So that case study is about an LGBTQ advocate and what we call the Mormon mom. She's a self-described Mormon mom, where the um, the LGBTQ advocate, her name is Reverend Marion Edmonds Allen. She's the director of um, an LGBTQ advocate. LGBTQ advocacy group here in Utah called Parity. And she had a, um, a homeless shelter that she couldn't publicly say that it was for LGBTQ youth, but all of the population coming, this is in Ogden, um, had youth who came out to their families and were rejected and left their homes. And then they came to her shelter for it. Mm-hmm. So there's um, this other woman, Laura Warburton, Um, she had a kid who was being bullied and didn't know that the school didn't tell her that her child was being bullied. And so she wanted to do something about this. So she, the next legislative session, she approached her representative and they worked together to draft some legislation that would require school districts to inform parents when their kid was being bullied. So like pretty straightforward, or at least you would think so, right? So- Marion, um was hosting like an or f- found out about this legislation and Gage Frower who is the representative um found out about her and invited her to to his office. So the way they describe like their first meeting like Marion says like she felt like she was being called to the principal's office. She was very like anxious and worried like how this was going to go down and um and in that meeting she She was describing like, you can't, you can't pass this legislation because it will out students or it will out kids to their parents. And that will be worse than the bullying. Like sometimes they're being bullied for their sexuality and they will be. And if their parents find out, like that's why they're being bullied, then they will be their parents are going to know about this. And that's worse to them. Right. So. Um, and she's like, and then they become homeless and all this. And then, and Laura describes how she says like, oh, we don't have homeless kids in Utah. And she's like, we're, we're a state where we take care of our own. And (laughs) Marion describes how she's like, you want to come to this homeless shelter and, and see. So, um, and Laura, in her video, she describes how she was really anxious about, um, you know, starting a, or even a working relationship with Marion because, she said she's a very tough woman and she didn't want to be perceived as being gay at the time she felt that way. And that she um, was worried about like just kind of some advocacy with her, but eventually because of this openness that they had, they learned with from each other and they come to have this great friendship. And in the video, Laura describes how they were going into this press conference where um, the governor at the time was holding this, um, it was about LGBTQ issues and Laura was going with Marion about it. And she, she said before they went in, Marion's, Laura says, you know, I don't believe in gay marriage, but I love you. And then Marion says, I do believe in gay marriage, which Marion is married to a woman. Mm -hmm. And she's like, and I love you. And so I think it's a really good example of how they have very different convictions of what they believe is right but they can still have this close friendship, and and then they also did like other legislation in the the Utah legislature. So um, the last one is motivations. So um, the two motivations that we talk about is like so when people come to dialogue. One of the motivations can be that they they're feeling pain and they want the pain to stop. So they're looking for a conversation um, have to have a conversation to make that pain stop. And then the other one is. Um, that they're looking for ways to collaborate to make the world better, and that case study is about an um, an atheist. They're, they're both Utah University of Utah students. One is atheist, and one is uh, a faithful Muslim, and they both describe their like faith journeys, essentially how they arrived to being where they are religiously. And what what I think is really interesting about that one is that um, Hamza is the Muslim guy. He is. Describing how when September eleventh happened, we just had this anniversary, the 20 year anniversary right. he um some kids at school were calling him Osama, and somebody else and some other kids stood up for him and said, that's not right um you know, if anybody does that to you, then like let me know essentially, like I have your back and Austin, who's the atheist he he says that, man, nobody has ever done that for me he said i I don't tell people about." his religious views that he doesn't believe in God mm-hmm. because he's only faced like animosity and mistreatment any time that he reveals it. And, and Hamza like expresses like, you know, disappointment that, you know, I'm sorry that you haven't experienced that, but I, I think that's a big reflection and, and they both talk about how hard it is to be a religious minority in a predominantly LDS culture. But what I think is really interesting that like that reflects how, especially in the latter day saint culture that like some faiths we accept different faiths and not others right so we oh, yeah. we can oh, respect yeah. a faithful muslim you know even like the church even helped um build a, a big mosque here in utah and so there's like some support for that but then for the atheist that you know he get he is faced with all this like essentially persecution.
0: Yeah. Or the um, or the former Latter-day Saint community which which is like a community unto itself. I mean, it, it is. That that's is a really cool good one. point. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's that's tough. So
1: these these case studies are models for um to show students like what these conversations can look like and then we have some newspaper articles that teachers can use to facilitate a dialogue in their class and the newspaper articles are about immigration, LGBTQ rights, um, conspiracy theories the capital riot like other things so they're hard topics that students want to talk about and teachers want to be able to talk about with their students because they want to the students want to um so it's like a structure to help them have these hard conversations but in a respectful way um so i think like that's a model for for them. And another thing that we share in the training with with the teachers are what the outcomes of dialogue are. So the dialogue often, it's a conversation between two people or so, but then the the outcome can be legislation. So we use the example of um, the Fairness for All initiative that Mm -hmm. in 2015, um, the church coordinated with other LGBTQ advocates in Utah to pass legislation that protected rights for um, employment rights and housing rights and public spaces, essentially, for LGBTQ people. And um, that came about from some personal conversations um, as a result after, you might remember, in 2009, there was a controversy where two men were kissing on church property on the the Main Street Plaza.
0: Yep, and Was not the one that Stephen Colbert like planted them there? Maybe this is a different one. Anyway, continue. No, it's I, I, I don't. Effect.
1: It wasn't planted because they were coming home from. Oh a, no, this one was the case. Stephen
0: Colbert did the thing where they just held hands in front of the fountain, and the and the security came and escorted them out. But no. I like continue your story. Continue
1: your story. <laughs> well, anyway, the uh, the two men kiss, and the security guard comes up and says, "Like, you can't do that. You need to leave." And so the men felt like they were being targeted because they were gay and And it got out in the news. It was right after um, Proposition Eight in California. Yeah. and so there's a lot of really hard feelings and a few days later, Dita Seed, who was a was a salt lake C- uh, Salt Lake City council member, organized a kiss in on the same property where she had some same sex couples they were up to seventy five where they were kissing on the property, and the security came and said, "This is private property. There's no protesting on." this property and they didn't leave. And so they called the Salt Lake city police. So it's like, just not a great experience. And so Dita contacted the public affairs department of the church. And this, I found out this story from Bill Evans, who was working for public affairs. Mm -hmm. And he said, Dita said that uh, we need to do better than this. Like we're not getting anywhere. So they started to have, um, meetings or conversations, just where they would get together in somebody's home, uh, representatives of Equality Now or Equality Utah and um, the public affairs staffers (laughs) from the church. And they would just get together. They weren't trying to work anything out. They were just getting to know one another. And Bill Evans describes how he became really good friends with the director of Equality Now or Equality Utah and uh, who is a woman married to a woman. And from these conversations, they um, started feeling like, well, what can we do to protect LGBTQ rights in Utah? So then from that is how they started building the coalitions that eventually passed the Fairness for All initiative in 2015 that protected housing and employment rights. So I think that it's an example of an outcome of dialogue. And I, I want members of the church to know more about that, to know that more, <laughs> because I think it's a model of how the church engages in the public square. And that's what the Utah three R's project is trying to promote is like navigating differences in the public square. Like the church is willing to work out this protection across differences. So there's, there's these external conversations within the public square. And then we have these internal conversations, which we've seen recently with Elder Holland's you know, talk at BYU and the, the aftermath or the response to it, that's internal diversity and in conversations and that we're figuring out as a community. But then how we navigate being in the public square is different than how we navigate influencing within our community.
0: Yeah. One thing that's ju- that I've been thinking about with all these examples is obviously some of these are some of the case studies are made for a school setting to talk through, so you're doing that with a class. but what pops in my mind is social media can we achieve any of these things on social or basically how do we do this on on social media or can we at all? I mean I think so much of this comes down to taking the time to be with people and understand them, and the fleeting engagements we have on social media don't lend themselves to that. but I'm curious if you if part of the uh part of the three rs it, it takes in any of that. Do we have a plan how to deal with social media because it's not going away but the problems are growing probably on there when it comes to misunderstanding and polarization.
1: That's a really good question. Let me pause for a second cuz cuz the nature of social media is that it's so you don't engage deeply and this no, whole point is that you're you're seeking to engage deeply. But I think the principles of of respecting the conscience of others and having a responsibility, feeling the responsibility to protect their rights, and being respectful—I think those are guiding principles that you can use anywhere, even in the brief moments of social media.
0: Yeah, and it's tough. I'm not saying I have the answers. I'm—I'm—I like to try to think I'm yeah. a thoughtful person, but well, I'm and and what still kind of bad. language
1: you use I'm, in social media? Like there, there was recently. Um, a Utah State Board of Ed member, Natalie Klein, who
0: oh, I've heard about her. Who yes, this has thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: So she's been like she's causing a stir because on her post on social media, are her rhetoric is very severe with in terms of LGBTQ relationship with the church. Like after Elder Holland's recent talk at BYU to um, BYU professors correcting them for being so openly supportive of LGBTQ students. Um, Her response was to, um, there was a a latent seminary, um, like a picture on social media in the latent Latter-day Saints seminary, where it was um, affirming LGBTQ people. And so she, she was very critical of it and in causing a stir. And so uh, she was reprimanded by the Utah state board of ed. So I think, um, I I haven't I've only read about that in the paper. I haven't like actually seen what her posts are, but she has a following. You know, there's a lot oh, of support. Yeah, a,
0: lot, a lot of people are all about are about the whole thing. They think she's speaking doing, truth. Yeah, to they power. think yeah. yeah
1: they think she's doing the right thing. But I think um, you know the the three hours mindset of if she instead of like walling things up and blowing things up, I think the approach. In order to be successful as a country moving forward and to keep our country, our experiment in liberty, then we need to be able to have successful conversations across differences. And she, in my opinion, as a representative of the state board, is hurting students. And I mean, she could have been it'd be less hurtful if she was just a, a parent that had an opinion but yeah. because of her role as an employee of the state or or an elected official of the state, then she has the responsibility to have the mindset that it's not just for my Latter-day Saint community, but I'm I'm advocating for the, the good of all the students in the public school setting.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Well, you're doing good stuff, Alicia. Um, I know our time is about up. I don't know if there's anything else... Well, if there's anything we haven't talked about that you want to make sure we hit on that the good people need to know about as we're going into Constitution Day. Is there anything we missed?
1: I think we've gone long enough. I mean, well, the, the one thing- <laughs> I've I had wanted... enough of you, Jeff. been <laughs> fine.
0: The one
1: thought that I, I wanted to share, and I haven't really gathered my thoughts too much on this, or I, I think effectively in communicating what I want to act or communicate, is that anytime I create a lesson, I think about how a lot of people feel betrayed that they didn't learn about thorny church history in church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's because like when Nicholas and I are developing this lesson, he sends me like all this history and it's so complicated. And I'm like, yeah, this is really like complicated and sophisticated and interesting, but I need to make a lesson that has a learning objective for, for kids that they're going to have like maybe 50 minutes to go through this and they need to be able to like, it needs to be simple enough for them to process and to be able to talk, you know? So yeah. I think I, I often think about that when we, um, like the purpose of our our curricula in Sunday school, you know, it's not to like, with the limited time that they have, like the whole point is to help us come unto Christ. And so they're not going to include all this thorny stuff. And related to, to that, like, I think some people feel betrayed over church history stuff because or in... It's part of this broader trend in like from the 1950s. The it was never in any history lesson did you learn like the hard parts about somebody. It the the intention was to promote like goodwill or like a a a a commitment to America, you know, and to feel good about who who our heroes are essentially.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a bit of it's a bit hagiographic,
1: yeah, (laughs) but the (laughs) yeah but that's, that's shifted in, in history teaching broadly. And I think the church has been part of it and a lot of people feel betrayed, but that's just part of like a broader trend where there's more scholarship, there's more access to documents where you can like verify the narrative that you're telling. And so I think, um, I appreciate that the church has recently done more with history with like the saints and the Joseph Smith Papers projects and, you know, a, a Richard Turley's book about the Mountain Meadows Massacre and other things, where, like we as as Latter Day Saints, we can go and find those good sources that if we want to know about that hard history, then like those sources are available. And I wish that people felt less betrayed um, when it's just kind of part of how we learn history. It's yeah. like my thought.
0: And by the way, one thing we should all note is the uh, September 11th, of course. Is September 11th in the United States? September 11th is also the anniversary of the Mountain Meadows massacre. Happened on the same date, oh, so that's I didn't know that. something to keep in your history. I think that those are some good points you bring up. And I, from my interpretation of it, I think yes, um, gospel doctrine when we're there at church can only have so much of a focus, and especially now because we got rid of gospel principles. And I think that was, in some ways, that's I, I'm mixed on it personally. I think it's to our detriment, but I also think it can create kind of like a um, an other group in your ward, when it's like, oh no, you you go to the training wheel class. That's and I and I think it's also a deliberate attempt to get us to focus on the basics and the the simplicity of following Christ in our gospel doctrine lessons. But I've rarely been to gospel doctrine lessons that get super in the weeds on a lot of aspects of church history, and I'm thankful the church is being more transparent than they used to be. And I think we can still do more at the church level of like being transparent about those things and not not making it so that we all have to seek it out like it's been available Mm. because a lot of this information has been available even well before the church started to engage more with it um it's the people felt more betrayed because they can find that information and say this doesn't match the narrative the church has been putting out and i think the church was just like publicly conscious for whatever reason somewhere down the line somebody was like well, we should show Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon by staring at the plates and just sitting there talking to Oliver. Like, that's cool. Oh, we should just pretend polygamy wasn't as much of a thing. Oh, we should pretend the Danites were as much of a thing. Because I guess we could say it makes us look weird or bad or any of these things that we worry about, right? But I'm glad we're getting to a place where we're trying to reckon more with that. And I think that demonstrates maturity as a faith to, to acknowledge those parts of our history, to say some things we don't fully understand. I mean... And we don't. And there's things that I'll forever not fully understand or be 100% comfortable with. And I think that's just something we we work through. But like you said, the, the resources are there. But I think we're getting to a place more culturally where hopefully this wouldn't be like a time 30 years ago. We mentioned last week on the podcast the anniversary had come of the old September 6 excommunications from the early 90s, for example. And a lot of that was for literally just doing academic work that the church wasn't happy about for the most part. And thankfully, I think we're more in a place. Where you can do that academic work. So anyway, that's my piece. But I'm glad you brought that. That's a good good insight. You brought that up, Alicia. So Mm -hmm. thanks for that. The church is we can do more. We can do more. Tell your friends.
1: We can we can definitely do more. I think my main point is that it's in a broader cultural history teaching culture, like of history in general. But I think we we like one last thought is that there is this like culture war of like, do we teach the truth of all the hard things and that it causes um cynicism among students or can we teach them in a way that makes them proud and that's like you know the liberal conservative dichotomy of like you know a lot of people criticize president obama because they thought that he wasn't proud to be an american yeah but i i think we can always teach the truth and like we need to teach the hard things of history especially slavery and you know our our racial history but that we can be proud of the, the, what was established, the structure that was established for us, That every, which requires responsibility for every generation to make the Constitution and the principles of the revolution their own and to feel a responsibility to protect that ri- the rights for others and to create a union in our generation that it can continue to the next generation.
0: Yeah, no. we can be good points. That. Good, good points there. And I don't want to get into critical race theory necessarily, but I <laughs> like the idea. But I think there's even that's an issue that has a lot of misunderstanding. And like you said, it becomes political, it becomes about bogeymen, it becomes about all those sorts of things. Um, and I don't know what all the fine, all the perfect lines are. We want to be proud of our country and patriotic, but we don't want to just like wash away the stuff that is something that can teach us valuable lessons about. Mm-hmm even missteps we have made. America is a wonderful place, but of course we've made missteps. And the best thing is to learn from those, not to say, not to wallow in our shame and say that we're just like trashing America <laughs> or something like that. And it's funny you mentioned people saying Obama wasn't patriotic enough. And I think we could have a whole discussion about cultural norms and expressions of patriotism between by political affiliation and how that's just a, that's a whole other thing. I, mm-hmm. I think you know what I'm getting at too. You know, I mean, the Republican, Republicans are more outwardly patriotic a lot of the time. And a lot of liberals are less so, but they might still feel patriotic. What is patriotism? I don't want to bore everyone with the whole discussion about this. <laughs> Alicia's a historian would probably love it. And I would probably love it too. But we, we don't want to run too long here and digress more than I love to digress. So um, folks, you can go to uh, Utah, utah3s.org. And that's Utah, the number three rs not utah like r r r literally utah 3 rs think of it like utah 3 relief Society. Uh, org. that's where you can get there okay so uh, where you can and you can find a lot of these case studies and the modules and things like that i mean i believe a lot of this inf- these resources you've designed them for teachers but the general public can consume this and mm-hmm. learn from yeah, it yeah they they're
1: designed for students yes. so it's what teachers can use with their students so there. it's there's lots there that anybody can learn from
0: And I hope based on what we've talked about, you might literally find something that could be a value that could be applicable even in your if you're a youth leader, like in your lessons with youth in the church. There are definitely things here that we can apply specifically in the church space to help us be more sensitive to others and understand them better and have more civil dialogue and and grow better as Latter-day Saints, and especially to avoid any ites among us, which is one of my biggest fears that's been exacerbated by so many things. Uh, especially in the past handful of years in particular. So this has been fun, Alicia. Thanks for enlightening us with all the tons of things you know about. I know I could just let you speak for an hour about like the, the entire <laughs> constitutional convention and you'd give us a great lecture on everything about it, but I appreciate you uh, bringing all this to us in the Latter-day Saint context.
1: Well, thank you. It's been so fun seeing you.
0: So and once again, this, uh, Alicia Tucker, she is the, um, you're, you are the czar of yeah. It's you, the, uh, the Utah three R's, and okay, then I have I prefer, a board. I prefer Czar because that sounds more. Like you're, a com- <laughs> you're a communist, but um, anyway. So please check out the, the th- Utah three R's project. Let us know what you think and uh, support these people doing good work to try to improve our our public discourse and improve the way we treat our fellow man. So until then, everybody. Uh, it's been terrific to talk to you this week. We appreciate you tuning in, and we will catch you again on the flip side on another episode of This Week in Mormons. Bye-bye for now. This